James chapter 5. We've got three or four more messages in the book of James. And uh, rather than sprint to the end, I am taking it methodically. Um, because uh, there's a lot, not only is there a lot here in the last um, seven or eight verses, but there's some interesting interpretation. And so uh, we're not going to rush through it, and I just want to take my time as we go. So tonight we're actually only going to be dealing with one verse, um, but I'm still going to make you stand. James 5.13, and uh, in honor of the reading of God's Word, James 5.13. I know you were just getting comfortable, sorry to mess that up. Um, James 5.13, let's read it together. Just the one verse, ready, begin. Is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Is any merry, let him sing psalms. Okay, pretty simple. Let's do it one more time. Ready, begin. Is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Is any merry, let him sing psalms. And tonight, uh, the message title is The Answer to Affliction. And I almost thought about calling it Sweet and Sour Christians, but I decided not to um, because it didn't come to me till late. I probably would have if I'd have thought of it early enough. So you maybe you'll see by the end of it why uh, we might call it that. But let me just encourage you tonight. I just want this to be a practical encouragement. There is an answer to the affliction that you're dealing with. Um, and the answer is not as complicated as you think. And tonight I want to just give you some hope in that. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and our time. Father, I love you and you know I need you and you know how inadequate I feel to bring your word. Um, and, and yet I'm thankful for this truth tonight. I know it really can make a difference um, in affliction. And it is something we're all going, going to face. We're all going to suffer and face affliction and face challenges and trouble. And if we respond incorrectly to them, we'll just magnify the trouble. And I pray that you'd help us as God's people to think biblically, not just when things are easy, but when things are difficult as well. And I pray that you'd help us tonight to uh, just clearly see what your word has to say and then make it apply in, in a very clear way as well to our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Pray that you bless the reading of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you know, as we've been dealing in our series, James is dealing with people who were in tough situations. And, and you know they were being oppressed. We've already talked about this in James chapter 5. Uh, they were being oppressed by the rich. They were suffering. I mean, if you read verse 6, it sounds like there were some that were even being killed in the face of persecution. They were, they were dealing with some very difficult things. As, as, and I'm assuming, I assume when I read this, that it's to a church, but probably it was, it was sent out to multiple churches. But uh, the, the setting in which they would have read it is in a local church setting. They would have read it with each other, with other believers. And the first half of the chapter deals with people being oppressed. And it's hard to sit back, and you, I think you'll agree with this, it's hard to sit back and just take it when you're being treated badly. I mean, nobody likes to just sit back and let it happen. We, we want to defend ourselves. We want to rush in. Uh, we want to maybe stand up. If you're a fighter, you stand up and fight. If you're more passive, you might tend to run away, but you want to get out of the situation no matter what. So James then spends part of this chapter telling them how to take it when you're being persecuted and how to take it when you're being oppressed. And just as a review, James tells them in verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore. So we can assume then the wrong response to, to affliction and suffering is to be impatient. 
When he says be patient, then we know the wrong response would be the opposite of that, right? Okay? So, so to be impatient would mean that we would get ahead of God and we would try to move things along on a different timetable than how he's working. And James says don't do that. He also says in verse 7, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. James says that the husbandman waits for the fruit. And so the wrong response then, we can, we can conclude then that the wrong response in a trial is to assume God's not going to make things right, that God's not going to step in, and that he's not going to turn everything um, in, into something good, that he's just going to walk away and make you deal with it. That would be a wrong assumption. Verse 8, he says, be also patient, establish your hearts. We can conclude, based on that phrase, that it would be a wrong response to lose heart when things are difficult, to give up hope. And maybe you've done that before in the middle of a trial where you think, I'm just throwing in the towel. It, this is never going to end. I'm never going to get past this. I'll, I'll never move through it. So I'm just throwing in the towel. That's the wrong approach. That's the wrong mindset to take when you're dealing with suffering. That's what he says. Verse 9, he writes, grudge not one another against another. That means to grumble. You know what else we tend to do when we're suffering? We tend to complain. And you say, well, I don't because I'm mature. Well, I must be immature because I tend to complain when I'm having a tough time. And there's a big difference when my wife is sick, she's a trooper. She still makes food. She still does laundry. She carries on. When I'm sick, the whole world stops, okay? I lay on a bed and I can't do anything for myself. I'm just being really transparent tonight. That's kind of, that's probably how, how most husbands are, you know. The wife carries on, the man is on his deathbed with a cold, that's it. So, you know, we tend to complain when we struggle. You know, our speech is most the most obvious revealer of our hearts. We've talked about that many times in James. And, and when we get ahead of God and we take matters into our own hands and we get angry that God's timetable is not ours and we lose hope, you know how you can tell when somebody is not thinking correctly about their trial? They're complaining about it. They're grumbling about it. And I'm not judging. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying that's human nature. That's what we do. But it's still the wrong response to suffering. Verse 12, he says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. And here's one more problem with our tongue when we're in the middle of suffering is we tend to bargain with God in order to get out of it. Maybe you've ever been to a flea market or you've been somewhere where you can barter for uh, the price of goods. And, you know, it's kind of fun to do that. I'm not really um, much of a barterer I'm, or I'm not really a salesman. I don't necessarily drive a hard bargain in those situations. And, um, but some people can really get the price down if you're in a market like that. Well, we tend to do that with God. And we tend to, instead of accepting what's happening in our lives, we tend to bargain and say, God, if you get me out of this, it's foxhole faith. And we say, God, if you'll let me get out of this, um, I'll do this for you if you let me escape. I'll do this for you if you'll bring me past this. And yet we really, and what he's saying there in verse 12 is when we do that, we really have no intention of keeping our promises. 
where essentially then he says, if you do that with God, you're being dishonest. You're not telling the truth to God. Our words in a, in a, a trial make us liars because we don't keep them. And he says that's the wrong response to suffering as well. So we've gone through this and we've seen over and over the wrong response to suffering and how it's often revealed in our speech. And you might be getting tired of hearing about the tongue because James over and over and over talks about it. But I'm telling you, we can't hear enough about keeping control of our speech. It is a problem for every human being that has ever lived. It is an issue for all of us. We must be reminded that our tongue is a revealer of our heart and our tongue is very often a big problem when we're suffering, when we're facing a trial. Look back over to James chapter 3. I don't have to turn the page in my Bible. Maybe you do. James chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. And I just want to remind you what James has already said about the tongue. This is the tongue chapter, you might call it. James chapter 3 verse 8. He says, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. James says that the tongue can do good things and evil things almost in the same sentence. Uh, we, we can bless God, and what he's saying here is we can bless God one minute, praise him in one breath, and tear each other down in the next breath. Uh, we can close a service singing, to God be the glory, and we can be fighting with our spouse before we get to the car. We can badmouth somebody on the way into church, and, but give them a big hug and tell them how nice they look once we enter the doors. We can be short with each other in the classroom or in the hallway with someone we serve with, but walk into the sanctuary and sing praises to the Lord with the exact same tongue that we just tore somebody down with. This little member is schizophrenic. This little member has a multiple personality disorder. I'm not here to diagnose tonight. I don't even know all about that. I am saying, though, on one side, your tongue can say something positive, and in the same sentence, it can be saying something negative. That's the danger of the tongue. It can say the best things, and it can spew the worst things. And he says, these things ought not so to be. He says, even a well that you get a drink out of is more consistent than that. Uh, you don't go to a water fountain and one drink tastes good and the next one's terrible. Uh, you don't go up to a fig tree or yeah, a, fig, a fig tree that produces olives. You, a grapevine doesn't put out figs. And his point say is that you say you are God's. And if you are what you say you are, you wouldn't be blessing God in one breath and tearing others down in the next. That's the idea. So James then comes back to this thought again over in James chapter 5. And he starts by saying there's a wrong way to respond to affliction. He says life is hard. Life is difficult. You're going to suffer. But his message over and over and over is that, but even though it's hard, it doesn't give you a right to respond like you're not a person of faith by the things that you say. 
Even when you're suffering, even when it's difficult, even when you may even have a good reason to complain, he says, if you are of genuine faith, even in the midst of suffering, your words will not contradict your statement that you're a child of God. First, understand what affliction is. Affliction simply means suffering. And, and to be afflicted means to suffer evil or to suffer, suffer evil circumstances. And the idea of the word is that it's related to suffering evil that comes from without. That these things are things that you can't help. Not just from other people, but in tough situations that you maybe can't blame somebody on. It's just a tough situation. And I look around the room and I know there are people in this room right now and you're, fla- you're facing affliction. Uh, Let's not pretend that affliction was only a a first century A.D. problem. Affliction is something that we all deal with at some point. Now, we may not be persecuted to the point of death like some of these were, but it's not like everything is easy for us. There are some in here and you're facing sickness, either in your family or for yourself, and it's a big deal and, and you're not really sure how to handle it. That's affliction. Some of you are, you've got a relationship problem and you're trying to work through it and you're trying to help somebody who's not where they're supposed to be and it feels like an affliction, it's suffering. Maybe you're experiencing unfair treatment at work and, and somebody's not doing right by you at work and it's unfair and you want to stand up and you want to speak for yourself and, and, and yet it, you can't really change anything. That's, a, that's affliction, You've got some financial hardships and maybe you've got medical bills that you didn't anticipate. Maybe there are things in your house that are breaking. And isn't it true that if one thing breaks, everything breaks all at the same time. If one appliance breaks, just get ready. Something else is going to break soon. Some are being spiritually oppressed. You're suffering from that today. You're suffering from oppression spiritually and nobody else knows it and you're the only one. And listen, James's message to this point has been endure. Be faithful to the end. You have a God, he says, who will make all things right. Um, and he will win in the end, as we heard this morning. He always wins. Be thankful for that. Stick it out. Here's the problem. Our tendency in suffering is that our tongue doesn't do what we ought to be doing. That's where he comes back to. Our tongue tends to lash out. Our tongue tends to bargain with God. So James then says, okay, here's an answer to the problem of your tongue during affliction. I'm going to give you an answer, he says, to how to use your tongue during affliction. How to take something that is negative, typically, and turn it into something that's positive while you're suffering He gives you hope. He says there is an outlet. There is a way. There is a means of escape. You don't have to lose the battle of the tongue when you're suffering. And he said, basically, I know most people do is what he's saying, but you don't have to. There's an answer. There's an outlet. Aren't you thankful when you've come up against a big problem and you think there's no way out of it to find out there really is an answer? Uh, My wife and I, when we were on our honeymoon, we went to... Um, it, we, went to, we were able to go to Hawaii for our honeymoon and, and uh, we went to a, a maze at the Dole Pineapple Plantation there in, on the island of Oahu. And we thought, oh, that'll be fun. A pineapple maze, it can't be too hard. Little did we know before we got there that it's one of the, the longest maze, plant mazes in the whole world. And we've only been married less than a week. And so our teamwork was still kind of gelling, you know. 
wasn't quite where it needs to be. So we started out, it's fun at first, and after a while, you know, it's Hawaii, it's hot, it's humid, and after a while, we became convinced there is no way out of this maze. <laughs> Things got pretty desperate. We weren't ready to die after a week of marriage. <laughs> and after what seemed like days, we saw a path to the exit, but we could not figure out how to get there, and we might still be there 22 years later had we not cheated and cut through the shrubbery to get to the exit. I'll just go ahead and admit it right now. We did that. Barely escaped with our lives. You know, can't, doesn't suffering feel that way sometimes, though? It's like there's no way out. It looks like it should be easy. I should be able to get right there, but I can't figure out how to get there. And listen, some of you are struggling through a hardship and you start, you're starting to think that there's not an exit sign. And I'll never escape this. But like that maze, there is an exit. There is an answer. It's like a hard math problem in school. You think there's no answer, but there is. You just have to be willing to work through it. You have to follow what the teacher has said. Here are the steps that you take if you want to get the right answer. You don't get to take a shortcut. You don't get to do things the way that you want. You simply follow the pattern. You follow the instructions, and it will get you to the exit. And I love the practicality of the book of James because he doesn't just say, don't lose hope. No, his method is this. Here's how you don't lose hope. And I love that he's practical. Instead of, he says, instead of using your tongue for neg for, um, negatively to complain about others or complain to God and bargain with him, you can use your speech productively in the midst of suffering. And here's how. And this is not earth-shattering, but I'm telling you this, we have a problem remembering these two very simple things when we're suffering. Here's what he says. If you want to use your speech productively instead of negatively in the midst of suffering, he says this, let him pray. Pray. Pray for the things that are bad. And you say, well, obviously, duh. I mean, come on. Well, prayers all through this passage will likely spend a few sermons on prayer um, as we go through here. Um, but, but James says the heart of endurance is prayer. If you want to endure, you must pray. In other words, when you're in over your head and you, you must have somebody that's able to actually help you, so turn to God in prayer. And, and we say, yes, oh, we know that prayer is the answer. But I, I believe that very often when we're truly suffering, prayer is the first thing we forget. We, we get, we, we, you know, we, we want people to know, we tell people, we talk about it. But turning to God in prayer is the very first step when you're suffering, when you're facing affliction. And I love how James has spent so much time challenging and exhorting and being practical. But here we see the heart of a pastor because he knows the struggles they're going through. He knows it's not easy and they're wounded. I mean, they are hurting and they have probably been there have probably been a more than a few casualties among them. We've all been there. When the burdens of life are heavier than we can bear and when you've been wounded and you've been broken and you have and, and I have when, when someone has said words that crushed you. And, and, and listen, I don't believe James is simply referring to physical suffering. I believe he is talking about, through this passage, I believe he's talking about the spiritual afflictions that accompany the difficulties of life. 
Because he's not talking just about surviving. He's talking about losing heart. He's talking about losing hope. So he's not just talking about physical survival. He's talking about spiritual survival and spiritual um, thriving. And, and I believe he's talking about what happens when we're facing things that cause us to be spiritually weak and cause us to be weary and cause us to be depressed. Listen, some people say this passage is about physical healing, but I, I, believe, I don't believe that because the solution, he says, is prayer and that's spiritual in nature. That's what's on James's mind. So he leads with this challenge. He says, are you suffering? Are you? Pray. If you're afflicted, Pray. Listen, I, and I know this is basic. I mean, we're talking about Christianity 101, but it's in the text, and we, God knew we needed this tonight. Right. See, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 9, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Do you know that you are a priest? According to the scripture, we are given the, the privilege of individual priesthood, which means I don't have to go through somebody um, who is a, an official um, representative of the church in order to go before God. And I don't have to perform anything or do any ritual to have somebody take my needs to God. I am, a, I am part of a royal priesthood. I have been granted individual priesthood. And you know what James is saying here? What he's saying here, and, and don't misunderstand this, but this is pointed. He said the one who is afflicted is supposed to pray. Like, don't miss that. See, I believe a church is supposed to come together and a church is supposed to bear the burdens of somebody else. But I also believe, according to Scripture, that it is the, it is the first, first the responsibility of the one who is afflicted to pray. That's what it says. And listen, I think we can be guilty of sharing afflictions before we've sought the Lord about it. Isn't it easy to throw out these things that, oh, pray for this and pray for that? And, and, and if you haven't yourself prayed about it, what James is saying is you have a personal responsibility first as the one who is afflicted to take that burden to God in prayer. See, we're a praying church, and I'm thankful. We pray corporately on Wednesday nights. The men come together on Sunday mornings, and we pray. We share prayer requests in Sunday school classes. And, but be careful of coming to a prayer meeting armed with requests that you haven't prayed for yourself. And I'm not saying a church won't pray, and I'm not saying we don't want to hear them. I'm not saying this pastor doesn't try to remember them and pray. But who does James say has the first responsibility in prayer? The one who is afflicted. And if we're going to be scriptural, if we're going to be biblical about it, um, pray for it yourself before you ask someone else to pray for it for you. That is, just a, that is just the baseline responsibility as the one who's being afflicted. Now listen, we want to help bear your burden. We ought to help bear your burden. That, that's part of our responsibility. We're, we'll even talk about that later. But James makes it very clear. Don't expect other people to pray for your burden if you haven't already prayed for it yourself. And I don't want you to misunderstand or think I'm being heartless. I'm just trying to give you the biblical mindset. If you're afflicted, you pray. Then you ask others to pray with you. Friend, pray to God when things are hard. 
That should be your first stop when you're dealing with affliction. And that's how you use your tongue productively. And remember, what we're trying to do is over here, James has already given us, here's the wrong response to affliction. Here's the wrong response to affliction. Here's the wrong response to affliction. He says, but here's the right response to affliction is if you will just stop and pray that God will help you with your suffering. I'm telling you, here's the thing about prayer is I know this is, I know that women can do multiple things at all at once okay they're multitaskers guys we have one thing that we can think about at one time and that's it but really what they do say scientific I mean I don't know that I believe this about my mom but they do say scientifically you can only think about one thing at a time I'm not sure I asked my wife what were you just thinking about and she's like it's like a chain I'm like how did you get to that conclusion I was like oh the history of the world just came out and she's like, chicken, we need chicken. I'm like, how do you got there? I'm like one track mind, isn't that guys, right? No, I, and I say, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Um, it just means that we do one thing really well, okay? We're not gonna do half-hearted efforts on all the things we're thinking about because we're trying to make sure we do it right, okay? That's what we're doing. So, but you know, the truth is you cannot think two thoughts at the same time. And here, here's, what, here's the practical nature of James's message. If you are praying in your affliction, you can't be complaining to somebody else at the same time. And if you are praying in your affliction, you can't be feeling sorry for yourself at the same time. And if you are praying in your affliction, you can't turn it into a bargaining session with God. If you are praying in your affliction, it allows you to escape the tendencies and the wrong responses that we typically have because now you are seeking the face of God to help you. Listen, that is the very first step and sometimes we forget. And, and, but I just want to remind you, don't share the prayer request first. Pray first. Don't call a friend first. Pray first. Don't assume others will pray for you more diligently or fervently than you've prayed for it yourself. Pray first. Oswald Chambers said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And sometimes we think that prayer will prepare us for this big moment. No, prayer is the big moment. Prayer is the moment that God is looking for from you. And we're, we'll talk more about prayer next time. But I just want to challenge you tonight that you be the one that prays. If you are the one that's afflicted, then God doesn't just want to answer your requests through other people. He wants your faith to be built. He wants you to seek him so that your mind can be focused on him instead of your great need in the moment. So pray first, he says. But he balances the challenge in verse 13 when he says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So he first says the initial answer in times of affliction is pray for the things that are bad. But two, he says, praise God for the things that are good. So pray for the things that are bad, yes, but praise God for the things that are good. See, here's the one, uh, one of the most, uh, most people forget what to employ when they're dealing with the time of difficulty is they forget to praise God. Listen, we're so inclined to complain that we forget that there's always something to be thankful for. 
There's always something that God has done or God is doing. As we heard in the, in the song tonight, there's suffering, yes, but there's joy. I mean, all of those contrasts in the song tonight lay it out perfectly for us. Listen, we're, we're so inclined to focus on the negative that we forget that God is still working. And so James says, almost ironically, I think, he says, if you're merry, sing praises. Uh, and uh, even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your trial, he says, in the word for Mary here, it means someone who's cheerful in heart or well in soul. The idea is that no matter what is happening physically, it can still be well with your soul. You can have a happy or cheerful inward man no matter what's happening to the outward man. Listen, I, I saw, George Mueller said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And if you've ever read George Mueller's biography, you know that outwardly speaking, he lived a difficult life. He lived a life of faith. It wasn't always easy. But he said, my primary job every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. And what he's saying, it is possible to be afflicted and at the same time in your soul be happy. The key to getting there, though, is to choose to praise the word for song, he says, uh, psalms here, literally, it means to pluck a stringed instrument. And we heard a beautiful um, a violin being played tonight. That's where the word comes from. But it also means to just sing praises, to sing to the Lord. And listen, you may be suffering and you may be hurting and you might be afflicted and wounded. But no matter what is happening on the outside, a person can choose to be well inwardly. And very often, I'm telling you, it, it does a, a person wonders if in the midst of your affliction and trial and suffering, if you've got a hymnal at home and you can just open it and sing praises to the Lord. And I know you say, well, this is, this sounds silly and people are going to think it's funny. No, I'm telling you, this is what the Bible says. If you're afflicted, you can be merry by singing. You can be merry by lifting up your voice to God and, and being reminded of truths that you forget when you're afflicted and when you're suffering. And you may not feel like it, but it's possible to make that choice. And it reminds me of Horatio Spafford, the one who wrote it as well with my soul. And you might call him the Job of the 1800s. He and his wife had a four-year-old son that passed away, scarlet fever. A year later in 1871... Uh, the Chicago fire swept through the city and Horatio Spafford was a man of means and he lost many properties. It was a huge financial loss in his life. Two years later in 1873, in the fall of that year, uh, he and his family were going to take a vacation in England and, and he was friends, very good friends with D.L. Moody, that great evangelist. So he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead on a ship to go to England. He was doing business and he would meet them later. And in November, on November 22nd, 1873, the ship that his wife and four daughters was on was struck by an, another ship, an iron ship, and sank in 12 minutes in the Atlantic Ocean. 226 people lost their lives that day, including Horatio Spafford's four daughters. He had an 11-year-old named Anna, a 9-year-old named Margaret Lee, a 5-year-old named Elizabeth, and 2-year-old named Tanetta. They all died. His wife, miraculously, she survived. 
She was found unconscious, floating on a piece of, of wood. When she arrived in South Wales, she sent an, a telegram to uh, Horatio Spafford that simply read, Saved Alone. Meaning, I'm the only one that survived. So he immediately set off to reunite with his wife. And after crossing, of course, he had to get on a ship then. And he crossed the same path, the same um, route that the other ship had gone. And as they were passing the place where the ship had sunk, somebody pointed out to him, this is where the, the ship sunk that your family was on. And after, after that, he returned to his cabin. And that's where he wrote the words, It is well with my soul. And Horatio Spafford was suffering deeply, but in the middle of his suffering, he recognized that even a suffering person can be well in soul. And even those in affliction can use their tongue to praise a God who is good, no matter the circumstances, no matter the difficulties. And listen, understand, it is possible in your suffering, it is possible in your affliction to stop feeling sorry for yourself and stop lashing out at others and stop bargaining with God and just praise him for being a good God to you. Amen. That you're saved, that you're a child of God and that you're, you've been blessed with family and that you've had blessings that maybe you don't, that you take for granted. It is good for us in the middle of our suffering to stop and praise. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. What are the next two words? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. It is a natural part of our prayer life to praise God and thank God and say, God, I know it's hard right now, but you're a good God and I still believe it. God, I know it's hard right now, but I know you still love me. God, I know I'm suffering right now, but I know you have my best in mind. And God, I know it's almost impossible right now to keep moving forward, but I know you've got a better plan. And I know that you mean this for good. And I don't see how it's going to work out, but I trust you because you're a good God and you're my father and you love me and you already proved your love for me on a cross. And that's how I know that you still love me and you always want what's best for me. It may not seem like it to you, but there is always something to praise God for. Your outward man may perish, but your inward man, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, your inward man can be renewed day by day. The answer to affliction is prayer and praise. Use your words for something productive. Pray for the bad things. Praise God for the good things. Listen, are you suffering from some affliction right now? Are you dealing with something difficult and something heavy? And it may be that nobody else even knows. There is a prescription for suffering. There is an answer to your suffering. There is an answer to be found. And that answer is this. Choose to pray and choose to praise. Pray for the things that are bad. Praise God for the things that are good. And I'm not saying it's an easy choice. And I'm not saying that it's just simple. But I am saying that God has provided an answer. And the answer is a means of escape. You don't have to. It doesn't mean the suffering will go away. It doesn't mean that your circumstances will change. But, the, but, but your inward man can be changed in the middle of your suffering. And I, I want to end with just two principles to live by from this truth tonight that, that I, I wanted to try to fit in as I meditated on it. And, and part of this principle here, one principle from this is this, 
when you're suffering, do the opposite of what comes naturally to us. Do the opposite. Meaning, if, if you're tempted to complain, do the opposite of complain. I mean, if you're tempted to call, you've got a friend, and they're kind of always there to hear you complain. Maybe instead of complaining, the opposite of complaining would be to call that friend and just list off a bunch of blessings. Your friend would be like, who am I talking to? Well, that's what James is saying. Do the opposite of what comes naturally to you. And you say, well, I just don't see how that's going to work. Well, have you been a Christian very long? Because I don't know if you have, then you know that the Christian life is essentially the life of doing what's opposite of what comes naturally to us. I mean, we are told time and time again I, that I was just dealing with somebody in my office today about the sin nature that we have. And Paul in Romans 7 was saying the good that I would, I do not. And the evil which I would not, that I do. It's a constant battle. It's a constant war. And the things that I want, I don't want to do. And the things that I, don't, I do want, then I don't find myself doing them. And he said, oh, it's just a constant battle. And I can't wait till I'm done with this body of death. You hear the frustration in his voice. Well, that's what the Christian life is. It is that we are called to do the opposite of that which comes naturally. I mean, all the time. And yet, I think the times that we forget it the most is when we're suffering. It's almost like when we're suffering, we feel that that is license for us to just be like we want to be. You know, I'm dealing with this, I'm suffering through this, I'm the afflicted one, so I have a license to just be like I want to be and say what I want to say. You know, it's kind of like, you know, in childbirth, you know, in childbirth, a wife is thinking, I can say whatever I want to this man and he deserves it. <laughs> we forgive you, okay? That's understandable. But listen, suffering doesn't give you the right to just treat people how you want to treat them simply because you're suffering. No, the concept is you must do what the opposite of what you're naturally inclined to do when you're suffering. That's the whole point of this verse. If you're, if you're afflicted, pray. It's not what you want to do. It's not what you naturally lean toward, but that's what you're supposed to do. So do it. it when you're, if you're, I mean, in the middle of suffering, if you want to be merry, praise God. It's not what you naturally do. It's not what you want to do. It's not what comes naturally. But if you'll do it, it will help you in your affliction. And I have a lot of applications to this one. Um, but I'm just going to just say this. Uh, the Christian life in, is a life of saying no. It's a life of self-denial. And being in the midst of affliction is not licensed to treat others or treat God any way you want to. You are called to say no and do what is not natural even when you're suffering. I mean, think about it. Um, what do you think Jesus was thinking in the garden as he prayed? I mean, he was suffering. Agony, great sweat drops of blood. And I can tell you this, his body didn't want to go to the cross. But Jesus Christ did that which his body did not want to do. Because there was something better in the end. And what God is calling us to do by saying pray and praise is don't do that which comes naturally. Do what's against your nature and you'll find there's something better in the end as you do. The second principle is this. In the midst of suffering, you must maintain a balance between the highs and the lows. 
In the midst of suffering, you must maintain a balance between the highs and the lows. What I mean by that is don't get too high when things are good and don't get too low when things are bad. And he says, if you're afflicted, pray. If you're merry, praise. Those are two ends of the spectrum. And what he's saying is through all of it, maintain a balance. Don't get so high when things are good. Don't get so low when things are bad. See, we tend to paint life with a brush that we're currently holding. And I'm pay- I have a red brush and I've got red paint on it and I just assume everything is painted red but, but there will be another day when you're holding a different color brush. See, we assume that things will always be as bad as they presently are. We also assume that things are just always going to be good, as good as they presently are. But there's, that's the danger of operating by emotion is that you might be tempted to make a long-term decision on a short-term emotion but that's not how life will always be. In the middle of your trial, in the middle of your suffering, you might say, I'm down here and it's never going to get better. But I can tell you this, that's not how life works. Life is a life of up and downs. It'll be better and then it'll be worse. And depending on your disposition, if you're an optimist or a negative or or pessimist, um, you may think things are always bad or things are always good. And depending on the slice of time that you're staring at, we might think that things are always bad or things are always good. But the truth is, it's probably somewhere in between. It's not as bad as the pessimist thinks and it's not as good as the optimist thinks. So what he says here is strike the balance. When it's bad, pray. When things are good, praise. Don't live on one extreme or the other. And especially this, folks, don't make some big emotional decision when things are one, one extreme or the other. You'll find yourself regretting it if when things are really bad, you make a big decision, you'll regret it later. That's what he's saying. Some people like savory. How many of you like savory more than sweet? Okay. How many of you like sweet more than savory? Okay, I was expecting more hands than that, yes. How many of you have a truly mature palate? And you like sweet and savory together. Okay, thank you. Life is like a bowl of sweet and sour chicken. You know, it's, it's a mix of salty and sweet. And James lets us know we can have a balanced approach to suffering. It's not always going to be salty. It's not always going to be sweet. It's okay to have a mixture of both. That's life. Listen, do you need some balance in your outlook right now? Have you, have you come to assume that it's never going to get better? Have you, have you started thinking that this is as bad as it's going to get and I can't see a way out of this? You need some balance. You need to be a sweet and sour Christian. Okay, that's where the title was going to go. Are you only doing that which comes naturally to you? Have you, have you landed in this spot where, man, naturally speaking, I, I just want to complain. I just want everyone to know what I'm doing, what I'm dealing with. I want my afflictions to be known. And you've kind of landed in that pocket of what comes naturally. And God says, no, you're not supposed to live where things are natural. You're supposed to step outside of that and pray when things are bad and praise when things are good. You don't have to let the affliction take you down. Listen, there is an exit sign to your affliction. And, and James gives it to us. He says, pray and praise. 
Don't just do what comes naturally. Do what God's word says. Whether or not you feel like it. And you can trust that if you will obey what God's word says. He'll help you through the affliction. Don't uh, uh, be balanced. There will be highs and there will be lows. It will be sweet and it will be salty. And if you make a rash decision during a time of extreme emotion. You'll find yourself really regretting it. And what you'll discover though is this. As you submit to God's word in the midst of suffering. That even when things are difficult and dark, it's possible to have an inward joy that can't be touched with your present trial. If you will submit to God's answer for affliction, you will find, I'm going to say it again, you will find that it's possible to have an inward joy that can't be touched by your present trial. If you'll follow God's answer to affliction, listen, it can be well with your soul. Amen. I mean, no matter how tough the storms get, and what, what page is it as well with my soul, Brother Samuel? You just failed. Okay. <laughs> You're the music director. Come on. When peace, when peace like a river attendeth my way. You know what he's saying? When things are good. When peace like a river attendeth my way. But he's talking about sweet and sour chicken, okay? When peace like a river attendeth my way. But then he says, when sorrows like sea billows roll. You see it? Sour, sweet. He said, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, okay, that's salty. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So when it's salty, you know what you can do? You can praise God for him shedding his blood for your soul. He says, my sin, oh the bliss, it's salty, my sin, oh, the bliss, it's sour. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. He says, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. What does he say? Remember, praise God for the things that are good. Pray for the things that are bad. I'm going to praise God. Listen, I may be in the middle of affliction, but one thing I know is my sin, not just part of my sin, but all of my sin, has been nailed to the cross and I don't have to bear it anymore. And yes, this affliction is hard, but I know one thing I can praise God for, my sin, not in part, but the hole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. When it's sour and it's affliction and you're struggling, you know what else you can praise God for? And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. You say, we're not supposed to sing repetitive songs. We're Baptists. <laughs> well, when God can turn your suffering into a, a soul that is well, we should repeat that all day long. 
It is well with my soul. No matter how salty, no matter how sour, the balance is it's possible to have a sweet truth that changes your inward man that your outward circumstances can't touch. Listen, this this one little verse can be life-changing if you'll let it. This one little verse can change the way you view affliction and trouble. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. You pray. Is any merry? Let him sing praises. The trial doesn't have to take you down. The affliction doesn't have to destroy you. I'm telling you, there's hope in James 5.13. Let's stand together.